just over the next few weeks, I want us to take a bit of a journey together into a prayer that Paul had for this fledgling church in this city called Colossae. And we're going we're gonna to touch into a few parts of his prayer because I think it's really powerful and really pertinent for, for us as the people of King Jesus seeking to walk out our life with God together in our time, in our city, and for his greater glory. Um, but before we get there, you might want to get your Bible ready. It's Colossians chapter 1. Just get your Bible or your app ready. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 9 through 12, just three verses. And we're going to dig into those three verses over the next four weeks together because there's some really meaty stuff in there that I think actually gives a lot of hope to our life as followers of Jesus and as together walking as his people, what that looks like. We're going to do that. So while you're getting that, your Bibles ready, I just want to set this up with... Um, there's a bit of a difference between knowing something and actually living something. <laughs> There's a bit of a difference between, oh yeah, I, I know that truth, or I know that um, outworking, or I know the result of something, as to actually then living that knowledge out in the day to day. There's a journey between, I know it here, I know it here, and I actually know it to be a daily lifestyle. And for most of us, one of the big challenges that we have due to the part of the world in which we grew up is that we know a lot here. We even know a lot of theory. We know a lot of ideas. We know a lot of formula. But we are sadly lacking in the application of that when it comes to lifestyle. Um, for example, um, this week, Nicole and I, we were sitting with some young adults and um, we were having a bit of a discussion with them about the fact that we live in this very hyper-sexualized culture and time. We live in this incredibly hyper-sexualized world right now and time. And in our discussion, they were able to, I mean, these are young people sort of, um, you know, I between probably I want to shoot between 17 and 20. Um, and in our conversation with them, they had a lot of information. Like they know a lot of information when it comes to sex, philosophies of sex, understandings of sexual identity, world views on sex, the mechanics of sex. Oh my goodness, they know the mechanics of sex. Like, and they know a lot of information and knowledge about sex, sexual identity and sex involved as a life, what that looks like in a lifestyle. Well, they, they know it. And in our discussion with them, Nicole and I, we were presenting a bit of a different worldview to the worldview that they were presenting because they were just presenting sexual activity and sexual identity as just some, as a thing or as a just... A commodity almost. 
But we, we said, you know, we used this one illustration with them because one of the young people that we were talking said, you know, uh, I've got a friend and they've, they've had like, um, they're only, their friend is 17 and they're already like counting like they've been with 30 different people at 17. I'm just like, that is just crazy. Crazy. But this is what living in a hypersexualized culture looks like into the generations. And um, they know, oh yeah, they've had 30 partners, they've done all this, and da 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 They know all this stuff. And then anyway, as Nick and I were talking with them, we used this little illustration. We said, well, you know that the next time that that person sleeps with and has sex with another person, actually behind that person that you're talking about, there's a line of 30 other people that are jumping into that body that that one person's jumping into. And they were like, what? I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. Like, and so we started to present the whole conversation about actually sex, the mechanics of sex, sexual um, identity, worldview on sex and philosophies of sex, it's actually a spiritual activity as well, which they didn't have the knowledge of. So they weren't able to walk out that as an understanding of part of influencing their lifestyle. And so there's a big difference between knowing something and living the implications of what you think you know and walking them out. And over the next few Sundays, I, use, I just set that up as an illustration that we're living in a time where there is a lot of information. There is loads of information and everyone knows everything about everyone, apparently. Apparently. And yet, the fruit of all that gnosis, that knowledge, is just people's lives living in brokenness, dysfunction, and sickness. One of the things that I said to the, we said to these young people as we were having this conversation, we said to them, yeah, you know, next time you talk to us, because they look at us, Nick and I, you know, we're about to turn 50, so they put us in the what would you know category, you know, we've all been there, but they put us in that category already. And we're like, no, don't put us out there yet. We're too young. <laughs> but they put us out there probably when we turned about 30, I think. But they put us out in that category. And, and we just started to talk to them about the idea that, well, actually, maybe, just maybe, there's a better way than the way that you think you know. And when Paul writes to the church, he's writing to the people, a, a group of people, people who have met King Jesus and they're trying to walk their life out together with him as Lord at a time when there is no, uh, where all of the anchor points of culture are shifting. Like we think we're going through great cultural change right now. Let me tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Everything we're walking through right now, it's loaded stories in the scriptures about all of the cultural realities we find ourselves walking through right now. 
So for Paul, he's writing to this little group of Jesus followers, and he starts to talk to them at a time when their culture seems to be set on many extremes. And they're trying to find a way to navigate these extremes. And they're trying to not only navigate the extremes, they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be King Jesus's people in the context of these extremes, living a different story. And what are the, what's the rub, both in the spirit and in the natural and in relationships that we have along the way? So let's just quickly read together Colossians, 9, uh, Colossians 1 verses 9 to 12. Uh, let me see. I think I'm on. It's not popping over to the next slide. Thanks, Neil. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 12. If you haven't got a Bible, there it is on the screen. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. So this is Paul speaking to the people of Jesus at Colossae. Now you've got to understand it's, it's probably not a group like this. He, he's writing to probably maybe four or five little groups of people that might be somewhere between six to 20 people that are kind of spread out in this town, this little city. Um, and um, so he's writing to them and he says, since we've heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyfully thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light." So let me just give you a little bit more of a framework here. So he's writing to these people who now call Jesus king. But you've got to understand, when they start saying Jesus is king, what they're actually putting themselves in is a place of grave danger. Because Caesar is king. So you've got to understand, they're living in the world at that time where the Roman Empire, where Caesar is king. And to say that Caesar is king or Caesar is Lord, is actually to ascribe to Caesar um, divinity. He is literally the son of God. And so when Caesar, and, and he ascribes that to himself, and he puts that on, his, on the coins, and so every time we buy and sell everything, there's the coin that says Caesar is God. Caesar is God. And there's temples and artifacts everywhere all through the all through the whole then Roman world, of Caesar. And you had to worship Caesar. Caesar is king. And so when Jesus comes along, and all of a sudden now, through his life, death, and resurrection, now there's these people starting to form around Jesus, and they're actually saying, well, actually, Caesar, you're not king. Jesus is king. And we, the term they would use is, Jesus is Lord. And so when they did that, they put themselves in incredible danger to even say Jesus is Lord. 
and Jesus is king. Now, it was an ta- interesting time because there was a new Caesar in the empire as this letter was being written. And Paul, by the way, wasn't writing this from a beautiful seaside accommodation, looking out, having a spiritual retreat, looking out at all of God's good creation, saying how lovely it is to be alive. No, no, Paul's in prison. (laughs) And he's in prison because he keeps saying Jesus is king. And he spreads the message of Jesus is king. And they put him in prison for it. So he's writing from prison. And he's wanting to let them know there is a way to navigate this, even though Nero, the new emperor, is the king. Now, Nero, he was only a new earthly king at the time, but in his newness, there was this great sense of hope because the previous Nero, the whole thing went bad, really bad. And then, but now there's this, sorry, the previous season, it all went bad. And now there's a new Caesar. So everyone's like, it's a bit like, you know, when we have an election. It's like, oh, good, that party's gone. The new party's here. New hope for a new day. It's that same dynamic. Okay, same dynamic. But if you know anything about the story of Nero, that didn't go so well either. (laughs) There's a lot of fire involved. But anyways, so, but there was this expectation that the king, Caesar, would bring justice. He would bring peace to the regions. He would bring prosperity to the empire. He would expand the edges of the kingdom and the influence of his kingdom, his rule and his reign, and take the booty off other nations and give it to the people of his kingdom. And then Jesus picks up that same language in the illustration about himself. He says, guess what, guys? I'm the king, and I've come to expand the kingdom and take the booty, which is everything that's been usurped by the kingdom of darkness, and share it with resurrection life and new life for all who would believe. Good news, there's a new king, and Jesus is king. And so they're in this town, and there's this great expectation and hope that Caesar would make everything better. And then there's these Jesus people. But every time they say Jesus is Lord, what they're doing is they're, it was interesting, that word got used in our worship this morning. It was called out, we enthrone you on our praises. We, we place you, King Jesus, over and above every other king, God, spirit, power and authority. We place you, King Jesus, we enthrone you, which if you... At first glance, if you listen to that with an open ear, you'll hear that's all about Jesus. But the flip side of that reality is, who has the power to enthrone? We do. We do. Human beings one day will wake up to the fact that God has made us to be image bearers of him and his kingdom, and we carry a lot of authority and power that we do not yet realise. We think we enthrone you, King Jesus, because that's the right thing to do, because you're the risen one. The other part of that is the participation is God invites you to do the enthroning. You're a lot more powerful than you realise. You're a lot more authorised than you realise. The church of Jesus Christ is an amazing move of God in the earth that we completely miss it if we get religious about it. So anyway, and in the enthroning, 
It's not just we're taking Jesus and placing him as king over everything and as the new spiritual authority structure that we live under. We are at the same time dethroning. We are pulling down and dethroning those things that we have previously enthroned. Have a think about that. Just let that land for a little bit. When we worship Jesus as king, when we ascribe him that place as king and lord of all, the highest authority structure in the heavens and the earth, even as Jesus says, all of that's been given to me and I give it to you, as we ascribe that to him, we enthrone him and we dethrone every other power. It's an act of love and war all at the same time. Sometimes we kind of lose that perspective. We, and, and that's okay in the moments where we get caught up in the intimacy of worship and love, where we're ascribing our lives to God. But at the same time, there's a massive spiritual upheaval and like a super pulse of spiritual power that gets released into the earth where powers are dethroned as we enthrone King Jesus. Every time we choose to use our money for the greater glory of God, we dethrone. Every time we choose to love when it's not easy to love, we dethrone. Every time we choose to be generous to the poor, we dethrone. Every time we go to heal the sick and see the kingdom come, we dethrone. It's a, both, it's, a, it's a constant reality that we need to always hold before us in our understanding of what's actually going on when we say Jesus is Lord. Anyway, this time that Paul's writing to these guys in Colossae, and I call it a bypass town, you'll see there at the top, because if you've ever driven like on the highways and... More and more, when I was a kid and we used to drive from Brisbane to Sydney and Sydney to Brisbane all the time over the Christmas break to see family, we'd have to go through all these little towns, you know. You'd just get up to 100 kilometres an hour and then all of a sudden it's like, you've got to bring it back to 60 because you're going through another little town. And you go through this little town and you're back up to 100 again and you go, well, once upon a time that trip used to take, I don't know, 13, 14 hours because you had to keep going through these little towns. But now, the highway systems are being built such that those little towns, no longer do you have to slow down for them because there's a bypass road. And you can just stay at 100 and go straight past the little town. And Colossae is one of those little towns where once upon a time, they were a real hub of activity. But then there was an advancement of the then known empire that sent a bypass road and it was this little aftermarket city. All the big names had moved out of town and all the third and fourth tier little operators moved in to try and build a culture for themselves. It's a bypass town and yet it's into that town that God thinks it's an amazing place to see the kingdom come and to build communities of King Jesus. 
It's a time where Caesar was worshipped as God. And it's a time also, you'll see there, the gods of Colossae. Now, we, if, some of you may have travelled through different parts of Asia and developing nations and where you go into those places and there are a plethora of spiritualities and practices. Now, unfortunately, we from the West, we tend to go into those contexts and go, those ignorant people, if only they would just you know, leave that behind and become more like us, developed, intelligent, enlightened, and so forth. But in doing that, we actually, we actually miss a truth that they are living under a spiritual system of authority that is very real and very powerful, and so they've built their whole lives around it. And it's not superstition. They are the gods of those towns, there's temples to them, there's practices around them, there's sacrifices to them, and it's all fueled and enthroned by the people seeking something and someone to give them meaning in life. So there's this, these gods that are at play in Colossae. Then, and, and then what happens is when Jesus becomes Lord, these people all of a sudden come out from underneath these, all, these spiritual practices and realities and gods, Ephesians 3.10, and now through the church that the, the glory of Jesus Christ would be made known to the rulers and the authorities. That's not earthly. Paul's not talking about in Ephesians 3.10 earthly. He's talking about spiritual infrastructure that has influence in and over people's lives. Paul's saying that no longer do we live under the tyranny of those gods anymore and their power, but we've come underneath the enthroning power of King Jesus. It's also a time where these new Christians are starting to try and figure out how do we relate to those other people in town, the Jewish people. Because they've, they've said they were waiting for a king and a messiah. And we think Jesus is their king and their messiah. We saw it on the cross. We've been told it was written on the cross, king of the Jews. He died as the messiah of Israel. He's like, how do we relate to them? Because um, they do a whole bunch of practices and stuff that we're like, why would we be doing that? <laughs> why would we live under that? And Paul's like, that's right, you don't need to live under that. You've been set free into a new covenant, a, a covenant a, a, of love and grace. And you've been called into that. But they're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we belong to them but not do life quite like them? How do we do it like King Jesus is doing it? And so they're trying to figure out who's, how do we figure this all out? It's a bit of a muddled pie really, isn't it? How do we relate to them? Um, and then, at the same time, Paul opens up that great piece of scripture with, since we've heard about you, Colossae, Jesus' people, we've not stopped praying for you. We've not stopped praying for you. Why has Paul not stopped praying for them? Because they are going to need it. When we stop praying... We've forgotten that we are in a great spiritual contest. When we stop praying, Paul says, I have not ceased praying.
praying for you. The kingdom life, the life of King Jesus is a life of prayer. I was, had, had um, a group, small group this week with a bunch of guys and we were down at the, at the uh, pub together and we we're just sharing some life together and I, I, I just read them this quote from a guy called David Benner who wrote a book called Opening to God. And he talks about prayer like this. He says, prayer is for all of us and it is as natural as breathing. It is, in fact, the breath of the soul. Now, the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions of a human being. He says it's the breath of the soul. He says it's essential that we pray just as it is essential that we breathe. We're all sitting here breathing. It's essential that we breathe. <laughs> I share it with the guys on Tuesday night. I said, I have memory of a good friend of mine. He was able to hold his breath a long time. Like, he was able to hold his breath until he blacked out. He was so good at it. But the only problem <laughs> was when he did it, he fell over and knocked out his two front teeth. <laughs> His folks weren't too happy with him about that. But nonetheless, there is danger if we hold our breath too long. And Benner says, hey, people, you, your soul needs to breathe. And that breathing process, it's called communion with God. It's called conversation with King Jesus. It's called prayer. It's called life. It's called friendship. It's called communion. Prayer, he says, goes on to say, prayer withholding can be very equally hazardous to our spirit and our soul. It's a bit like this. Um, some of you are school teachers, so you might get this analogy. Some of you have, uh, have got young children. But sometimes when big groups of kids hang out in closed spaces or your own little kid all of a sudden decides that it's time to, like, before they can change nappy, they decide to, you know, do number twos in their nappy, and you step into the room, it's like, oh, my gosh, what is that odour? It's almost like you can feel it. It's that thick. School teachers sometimes have to walk in on that, usually after lunchtime, you know. It's like, oh my gosh, where's the deodorant? Someone give them deodorant, please. It's like there's this odour. And the only way to get rid of the odour is you've got to open the windows. Like, open the windows. Let that air out and let the fresh air in. That's what your soul needs to do. If you're not communing and talking and conversing with God, you're just building up a whole bunch of stale air in there. And if you hold on to it long enough, it'll knock you out. And if you hold on to it long enough, people will get around you and they'll go, what's that? Because your, your whole life starts to be off and it leaks out of your soul. Your soul has been made to commune with your maker. Benna says, um, we, sh we, we pray not because we should, but it's because our it's the natural orientation of our soul releasing towards God our hopes, our hurts, our, our, our reality. 
and allowing him to breathe back into us his hopes, his love, his healing, and his reality. Prayer is the response of your soul, releasing all of that stale reality out and welcoming in the reality of God. How's your breathing going today? How's your prayer life going today? Does life stink a little? Start breathing. Start talking to Jesus. Start allowing the Holy Spirit to show you that you, your presence is welcomed before the Father. It's interesting because Paul says, be assured that since we've heard of you, we've started praying for you. In other words, these Christian people, Christian people need assurance <laughs> that what they're walking through, they need some assurance. Like, it's okay. God's with you. You're not alone. You can walk with Jesus through this. You can walk with Jesus over this. You can walk with Jesus around this. It's okay. We need that kind of relationship. Paul says, I'm assuring you that we've not stopped praying for you. So are you breathing? And the reason why Paul's praying and saying, I haven't stopped praying for you because you're going to need it. Who are the people around you where you look at them and you go, they could do with some prayer? Have a think about them because they're the ones, the Holy Spirit saying, they need some assurance. Get busy praying. They need some assurance. Get busy praying. And then Paul says, you're going to need this prayer because this, this next bit's so important. You need to understand there's wisdom from God to be able to walk the intricacies of this difficult cultural time. There's this nuances of the Lord saying, come this way. Walk with me this way. Share your life this way. Do this together with others. Do it in the name of King Jesus and not in your own name. And it's interesting because Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with this kind of knowledge of his will. Gosh, I mean, we've been at this gig for like, of following Jesus thing for a, a while now. And one of the biggest things that we come up in conversation with people is, I don't know the will of God for my life. My question is, why don't you? Why don't I? Why don't we know the will of God for us in this moment? Let me suggest why. A, we've stopped breathing. We've actually stopped asking the Lord, firstly. But what we've done is we've reduced the will of God to our very self. Just underline it. <laughs> We've reduced the will of God to ourself and our own personal sense of happiness. We've reduced it. 
It's all about me, Lord. It's all about me, Lord. I must increase. (laughs) We've made it all about ourselves. But God has a really big story. And he's been at work well before we arrived for our well-being. Love that song, Miracle Maker, Light in the Darkness. You know, there's a verse there. I can't remember the words for the word, but it was like, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. Jesus says, I only do what I see my father doing. He's always at work. So how about, this is why Paul's praying. He's saying, we need, Jesus' people need to be filled with the knowledge that God's doing stuff so that we don't get caught up and reduce God to ourselves, but we actually enter into the story of what King Jesus is doing all over the world. And it's bearing fruit, if you read a little bit more in Colossians. It's bearing fruit all over the place. It's growing all over the place. The story we've stepped into is, and I think I mentioned this a few months back, it's not that we've taken the whole of the kingdom of God and said, now come and live in me. But in fact, what has happened as the, the Lord has called us by name, we've come alive to him and our whole life has been drawn up and born up and born again into the greater reality of the big kingdom of God. That's a work. I was sharing with, um, with a guy the other day, a young man the other day, and great young guy. He's really pursuing the, the things of God for his life. He's orientated towards, I'm being invaded by God. He keeps telling me this, and I'm trying to figure out how to follow and what that means. And as I spent some time with him and we were, we were unpacking that together, he was telling me this fantastic moment that just of recent time, he had this incredible encounter with God where God has literally like, like done this deep and profound work in him, so much so that it's, it's changing him. And he's able to identify it and he's able to put words to it. And it's, it's influencing how he's choosing to spend his life. And, he's trying to, he's, and it's calling him onward. And he's like, there's got to be more in this. And as we were talking about just the reality of that very moment, I, was, I then I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Remind him of the big story. I said, isn't it so wonderful that the father, that the father would for the last, you know, couple of years be working with people who are interceding and praying and developing and working to create the very context in which you entered and God met you at it. How kind of God that he's been at work all this time for your well-being as you enter into the story. The will of God, it's a big one. Jesus is at work. He's making all things new. Let me just quickly jump over to this one because it's really important you hold this in play all the time, all the time, because this is the mindset of the early Jesus people. And this is how they connect to the long story of the Jewish people and that, that they come out of because of King Jesus. They always hold this lens in play, and we need to as well. And it looks like this. The big story of God is creation, 
The maker of heaven and earth made everything good. It is good. The next part of the reality is decreation, death. Death, the counterfeit kingdom comes, bringing sickness, sin and brokenness. And it's rampant in God's good creation. And then there's life, death and resurrection. You could put in brackets after that, new creation in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's King Jesus came to live, die, rise again and make everything right again. King Jesus has conquered, King Jesus is conquering and King Jesus will conquer. That's, that's what we're living in. Got to keep it in play because otherwise we'll get lost in, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. Now, God has specific nuanced answers for each and every one of us, but it's inside that story. Your story is in that story. And you find the knowledge of that. This is why Paul says, I'm praying for you that you get this. It requires spiritual understanding. It requires not just, oh, yeah, I know it. It requires a partnering with the power of the Spirit to get this. That we find our true story in his story. And he gives us life. Where everything that he had for us in Christ and won for us in Christ is now ours for the living. And it's good news for us. It's good news for our region. It's good news for the kids in the school down the road. It's good news. It's good news. And we get invited to partner with God to live into it. Am I making sense this morning? Like Paul, this is is like, I think I've unpacked two verses. (laughs) But it's like, but you put it in its right context and you start to unpack the story around the scriptural truth that we tend to go, it's all about me. We read it through the all about me lens. But if we read it through that lens, all of a sudden our life finds purpose and power and meaning because we're connected to the one who holds all things together. Paul says, I'm praying that you would get the knowledge of this. Uh, or it, uh, let me, yeah, whoop, sorry. I'm going to go back there. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yeah, I am. N- knowledge and maturity. Let me go, let me finish where we started. When I was meeting with those young people this week, they know a lot of stuff. They know a lot of stuff. But they don't realise the heartache they're setting themselves up for. They don't realise the emotional, spiritual, physical and psychological damage they're doing to themselves. You know how I said to them, please don't look at us like we're old and all that and we've got no idea. I said, please let me reassure you, we have every idea. We have walked where you've walked. We understand what it means to be a young person trying to grow up and figure out our sexual identity and sexual practices in a healthy way and what that looks like. But let me reassure you, I said to these young guys, let me reassure you. I said, we're now at a stage of life where we're actually having to spend our every day cleaning up, healing, driving out demons and setting people free from the very things that you think you know. And all of the dysfunction that is their life entails right now. And learning to love them and care for them and call them on into a whole new way of living life. 
I said, I think we know some stuff. I'm not going to say you have to take it, but I think we know some stuff. Maturity goes from knowing something to living out the power of what we think we've discovered. And in King Jesus, Paul is saying, I'm praying for you, church. I'm praying for you. I have not stopped praying for you since I've heard about you. I've not stopped letting my soul breathe before God in and out and in and out and in and out. That as you learn to enthrone King Jesus in your daily life, the powers that you live among will be dethroned and life would come. The new creation life would come. The good news of God would come to all and sundry. You know, Pine Rivers. Pine Rivers, a bypass town. What are the gods of our town? Well, I just threw one up there. Suburban materialism. That's a pretty powerful God that we enthrone and that we serve and we're slaves to. And we trust its power more than we trust the generosity of the kingdom of God with our resources. We trust the future of that material thing over the death and resurrection and the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. I'm just like pointing at some truth here. That, that, that's not just some sort of like economic decision. Behind that economic and the wisdom of all of the infrastructure that goes with those economic decisions, there is power, spiritual power, the gods of the region. And it's through the church of Jesus that Paul is saying, even in Ephesians 3.10, he's saying, guess what? Through this group of Jesus people, King Jesus people, we are going to poke that God fair in the eyes and we're going to dethrone it and, and rip it and strip it of all its power, even as King Jesus did in his resurrection. And we're not going to live under the tyranny of it. We're not going to live under the fear of it. We're not going to live under the influence of it. It's going to serve us following King Jesus. It's going to come because you know what? When Jesus, <laughs> there's a whole great bit of imagery here when Paul talks about how in the resurrection of Christ, he, he, in, in his train, he took captive all of the works of the enemy. That's illustration of what the Roman Caesars would do. They would go out to the far reaches of their empire. They would advance it. They would take captive all of the other kings of the lands that they have just conquered, and they would, sh they would shame those kings by putting them in stocks and, and chain. And they, those, those, uh, all the soldiers, like the, the Roman Caesar would come back into town, high and lifted up on the chariot. And, it, and everyone would line the streets because they knew what it meant. The king has had victory and his booty it's ours too, and we get to share in what the king has just done for us. So Jesus, take, Paul takes that same imagery of King Jesus, and that as, as the Caesar would come back into town, he would, um, all the soldiers of the opposing kingdoms would come in behind him with a great big fanfare, and all the people would be on the streets, yeah, Caesar, yeah, 
And, and, and as he did, and the last people that would be in the line, because it was the most shameful place, were the opposing kings. Not their soldiers, their kings. And the kings would be the last ones with their heads bowed, full of shame, and the people would be yelling out, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Paul's saying, Jesus is Lord. Through the people of the king himself, in these little outposts all through the earth, Jesus is Lord. The people of Jesus, in the way that we choose to spend our life, we're on the streets and we're going, shame on you, enemy. Shame on you, spirits. Shame on you, gods that have owned us. King Jesus is Lord. And we're sharing in his good news. No longer are we slaves to you. We're in the party of the lifetime. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. We are not. But we get to move in the authority of our Lord Jesus. The gods of Colossae, the gods of Pine Rivers, we dethrone them every time we say these words and act, put our actions to them. Yes, Lord. It's a simple thing. Yes, Lord, has huge power. We're in the big story of God making everything beautiful through Jesus Christ in our time, in our town, and in our families. And we are going to do this in the wisdom of God. And if you really unpack that scripture some more, that spiritual wisdom and epignosis and knowledge and all of that maturity stuff, it really boils down to, does it look like, smell like, act like King Jesus? Are we living the kingdom life? I think that'll do it for today. What do you think? Got a belly full? <laughs> I sure have. I've got more than a belly full. My Lord. Hey, why don't we just stand and pray?